Please note that this recording was made on Tuesday the 2nd of May and as AI is moving so fast at the moment, some of the things in this podcast may be a little bit out of date, so uh, please bear with us. Welcome to this week's David George podcast, AI and You. Uh, I'm Mark Wakeley and I'm going to be chatting with David about artificial intelligence. Good afternoon, David. How are you this afternoon? I'm fine. Thank you very much. So what we're going to talk about this week is types of AI. I think the thing is with AI, it's quite a big umbrella sort of term. It, AI is, has been rapidly growing for years and years and years since since the mid-50s. Um, but it's a field that involves the development of computer systems that can perform tasks that would normally require a level of human intelligence. That's a generally accepted definition um, of AI. It's a very wide-ranging field and can cover many sub-disciplines. You know, from natural language understanding, natural language processing, which we're seeing now with the advent of successful generative AI products, robotics, smart vehicles, you know, automatic translation of languages. They're all AI subsystems, knowledge representation, the the development of um, expert systems where human know-how was encoded and then inferencing mechanisms were used to emulate the way in which human beings would solve a problem. There are different um, developments in the AI field, though, aren't there? Yes, there are. I, you know, with the advent of generative AI, which has taken us all by storm in, 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 in the past few months uh, um, only, many people are now thinking that products like ChatGTP or Google's uh, BARD software is AI. Well, it is to a lesser or greater degree, but there are many other forms of of artificial intelligence. And, and in our everyday lives, where would we typically come across artificial intelligence, even if we don't really know that we are coming across it? Well, probably in the last few years, the most apparent example of AI has been the implementation of virtual assistants. So to answer your yeah to answer your question, there's the Siri's, there's the Alexas, there's the Bing's, there's the Google Assistant, you know the the voice recognition uh, systems and natural a bit of natural language understanding there. Yeah, and and in the same context that we've talked about this quite a lot, they're also language learning as they're going along, aren't they? So your Alexa speaker will learn how you speak and the kind of words that you use. Yes, it can detect, you know, your your voice or the voice of anyone that has given it the necessary training. Yeah, but it doesn't learn in the same way as the OpenAI ChatGPT, for example. It, they learn in completely, totally different ways. Yeah, because there's a whole whole industry of, of Alexa learning, isn't there, of, of coaching Alexa to recognise certain things. Yes, but but the way in which they recognise and the way in which they respond, the mechanisms that are used behind the scenes are very, very different mechanisms. Looking at the way AI is going to develop in the future, where do you think it's going to be most used? What industries are going to be transformed or, or certainly changed, if not transformed by, by AI and its uses? There are two sides to that. You know, there are some industries that are going to be impacted in a negative way with respect to um, job loss uh, and the impact on employment opportunities in those industries. Uh, and then there are other industries that uh, possibly, are, you know, we don't even know about yet that are going to grow up as a result of the advancement of, of AI techniques and technologies. 
the popular belief amongst the you know amongst the business analysts at this point in time is that uh, manufacturing, for example, which is already heavily automated with with robotics, that workers in manufacturing industries aren't going to be um, hit so so badly as say workers in in the financial industries. Because, you know, even though there's transaction processing automation in banking and finance, there isn't so much knowledge intensive automation at this particular point in time. And that is going to change. Many, many jobs uh, will become redundant in, in banking and finance in the, in the near future. And what about things like uh, people working in the computer industry or in software writing or website design, those kind of things? Are, are they going to be heavily impacted? Yeah, they will be. There are already examples of where that's going to happen with the advent of, of ChatGTP and Google Bard, for example. Programming languages are, langu- are called languages very deliberately. They don't look anything like natural English language, for example, but they are a language uh, nonetheless. They have a syntax associated with them. And ChatGTP, for example, or a a version of it, is able to generate um, modern-day programming language code. So so in the same way now that an aeroplane can virtually fly itself other than take off and landing, many, many jobs will change because computing will take over. I, I mean, something that we've talked about on this podcast before is even, you know, creative writing or art or design, um, architecture, all those sort of things. Surely that that's something that artificial intelligence could very easily take over. Yes. There's a level of creativity that we have as humans that, in my opinion, and not just my opinion, but in the opinion of many others in the field, there's a level of human creativity that, that is unlikely to be surpassed in the foreseeable future. Now, what's foreseeable? You know, for me, foreseeable might be five years, or but for others, foreseeable might be 10 or 15 years. But nonetheless, there's a difference to what is perceived as being creativity in the AI space and what is perceived as human creativity. It's going to be job functions that are rule-based or that can be learned by reading something that are going to be pretty seriously affected. The legal profession is another sector that is going to be further automated as a result of of AI because it's very much rule-based. However, legal experts are not going to be generally necessarily replaced where precedent needs to be understood and uh, and set so that new laws can in fact be introduced but you know how to automate the transactions associated with buying and selling a house is completely and totally rule-based and could be fully automated we'll get on to some of the more controversial issues with ai in a moment we're talking on on the day that the announcement of uh, jeffrey hinton leaving google uh, has come into the news now one, one of the things that i've read on that subject is that he was concerned about the speed of the way ai is now developing what why he's left there's a number of different strands on that particular subject but I know that one of the things he was concerned about, and he felt that it was moving much faster than he had originally predicted. So that's where we come on to super intelligence, and which is the next stage, I think, isn't it? Uh, of, you know, aren't we currently in the, of, of the three that you talk about, we're in the middle one at the moment. And the super intelligence is the next one where computers or software has some sort of uh, 
conscience, for the want of a better word? Yeah, I think um, there are there are a number of categories and subcategories in the AI space. And at the lower level, currently, there are sort of four categories, really. On the one hand, there's the, at a higher level, there's what we call weak AI and, and, and another that we call strong AI. And the weak AI is is where we are currently with the AI technology. Super intelligent AI is a term used to represent the strong AI. And we're nowhere near that at this particular point in time. However, going back to what you said about um, the speed with which things are happening, that is here and now the speed with which products like ChatGTP and Google's BARD are, are evolving is, is evolving at tremendous pace. We're in a situation now where what used to be, you know, uh, a highly personalized um, sort of artisanal creativity, um, you know, creative an individual's creativity in in, in writing content, uh, for example, has now been turned into an industrial process. So it's completely and totally de-skilling certain current job functions. Talking about the various types of AI, one of the ones that people, and for, for someone like me, this to me seems a very high level, but I think in the AI world, it's not a very high level, which is autonomous cars, autonomous driving. Yes. Where does that come in the hierarchy? Because it's something that some people will have come across. I know that there are some towns that have the uh, the little bots that do deliveries uh, around town. I assume that's on the same process as uh, automated cars. So where does that come in the hierarchy of everything? No, it's still in the weak AI space. I mean, even though there's a lot of complexity associated with it and the decision-making capabilities of an autonomous vehicle, a driverless car being a very current example of, of what's happening with that technology. It's only capable of doing one thing, and that is actually driving safely on a road. It might respond to certain voice commands, but really what it's all about is using sensory capability to pick up sensory information from the environment that it's actually in. So it has a limited understanding of its environment, which is driving on a road, but it wouldn't have an understanding if it was a submarine, you know, about it, for example, because it hasn't been trained to do that. And it's not programmed as such. It's programmed as such to recognize what's happening on the roads, recognize street signs, recognize um, opportunities for danger, such as pedestrian, you know, crossing the road and making the appropriate decisions. So that's a very much a, a rules-based um, opportunity. And, and that, again, exemplifies another distinction in the AI space between what we call um, symbolic reasoning and machine learning, where symbolic reasoning has historically um, uh, dominated, and but machine learning has now become the method of choice to the point where ML, machine learning, and the terms AI are frequently interchanged, but they are very, very different how they've been implemented and what their capabilities are. Looking at, look at autonomous cars, for example, the car would not be able to make a moral decision on uh, you know, if there was danger to life. And it had to make a decision on that. It wouldn't be able to make that on a moral basis. Well, that's a big issue with all machine learning um, algorithms and systems at this point in time. It doesn't you know, the concept of morality as, as a human value isn't actually understood by those those types of systems. However, it can be programmed. It doesn't know it's going to be making a moral or an ethics-based decision. It can be programmed to recognize um, a pedestrian crossing a road in a dangerous situation and take the appropriate action. That would be a pre-programmed rule that it's obeying 
not a conscious moral decision based on its own value system. When we're looking at uh, superintelligence, what do you think are the consequences if this does develop? And I know it's, at the moment it's almost theoretical, although being studied all the time. What what could be the consequences? The consequences of um, of superintelligence in terms of superintelligence, which is a long way off at this stage. And again, it's long way off is a fuzzy term for some people. Long way off might be a couple of years, for others it might be twenty years. A long way off for me is probably 10 to 15 years. And I don't think we need to get to the, what the current definition of superintelligence um, is in order for us to be extremely concerned about the rate of progress that's currently being made. And the biggest risks are, of course, um, applicable to even some of today's AI systems, you know, where we get uncontrolled automation, you know, where output in one form or another, is being produced on an industrial scale rather than on a personalised uh, basis, like the the role of a copywriter, for, for example, which is easy to sort of relate to. That is, copywriters have certain capabilities and skills um, at a personalised level. We used the word before artisanal. Now everything can, you know, with ChatGTP types of systems, generative AI. Their job is being totally and completely de-skilled uh, and it's become, we can generate output now at a similar level of creativity and originality, if it is original, that's industrialised. It's funny because you talk about copywriting, for example, and uh, there are at least two examples that I've seen recently on the internet of, of small two-paragraph pieces. Well, one was a poem, the other one was a, was a small two-paragraph post on Facebook. Both of those I could see were AI generated yes. just because of the nature of the way they were presented and the words they were using. How far are we away from not being able to identify that? I mean, I assume some people already can't, but... Well, many people won't be able to notice the difference. So. Maybe my, my, my senses are heightened because I have these conversations with you every week. <laughs> well, it's possible. And you've done a lot of background reading, you know, so so you, you're more familiar with... with with, with some of the principles of how they're operating than, than a lot of people are. But I think to answer the question, since the arrival of ChatGTP, which was the first, followed up very quickly by Google's Bard, um, I'm not mentioning specifically Microsoft Bing because you know, Bing is contained within, within Microsoft Edge, is using um, OpenAI's um, technology anyway. So it's using ChatGTP type technology in any event. So... So um, it, whatever applies to to ChatGTP will also, at this point in time anyway, apply to Microsoft as well. It depends, but around those main dominant um, products at this point in time, there's a whole industry that's growing up very, very quickly about providing interfaces to various styles of chatbot systems. And some are more capable than others. Uh, the top of the range chatbots, as just exemplified with, say, for example, ChatGPT uh, or Google Bard, quite difficult to actually determine. Their, their output is so human-like, it's very, very difficult to actually say yes with any degree of certainty. Yes, this was generated by a chatbot or no, this was written by a human being. However, behind the scenes, and we mentioned products like Alexa and Siri earlier, they're template-driven. You know, the the types of questions that might be being asked of them, their structure is, has been predefined at the back end. And the response to them has been 
put into a template and all the blanks just then get filled in. Now, that's a different mechanism to the way in which um, uh, generative AI systems work. But there is some sort of formulaic background to them. And so if you're trained enough and you see enough examples, you would be able to, with a reasonable degree of success, say, yeah, I believe this was generated by a chatbot. But as we've discussed in previous podcasts, the uh, there needs to be some sort of fingerprinting so that we can actually identify immediately. Now, that's coming. There are already some systems out there that are able to, with a reasonable degree of success, again, uh, identify whether it's been generated by human or whether it's been generated automatically. Uh, but we do need, I believe, some form of regulation that would enable us to identify them in- instantly. As, as being as being computer generated. Do you think that's the responsibility of the international government community to do that? Well, I think so, because even though there are a number of people working in the tech industry that are producing these tools that would say, we have a responsibility to do this <laughs> to society at large, people, perhaps they're not the people that are making the final decisions, because with this sort of arms race that's going on at the moment for dominance in this particular segment, which is going to be worth, I mean, billions and billions, if not more than billions, they're not necessarily making those decisions. It's the business people uh, motivated by generating profits for their shareholders that are, are actually making the decisions. And so if it's in their interest not to fingerprint automatically generated text, then that's what the business decision will actually be. So it really is going to be up to controlling bodies um, of one form or another, be that government or, or some other institution, you know, similar to, I mean, the institutions that manage the introduction of new medical treatments and drugs, the aviation-controlled institutions that manage the introduction of new airplanes, for example, the institutions that manage the quality of uh, and and behaviour of driverless vehicles. It's the same, you know. Generative AI products need to be and AI in general. Uh, now needs to be regulated to some form in some some way or the other. Quite simply, because even though there are lots of benefits that 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 can be realised, there's also lots of harm that can be done. That was one of my questions for you. Does the potential for harming society outstrip the benefits of AI? I know that's a hard question to answer. <laughs> to me personally, it feels like it could be open to quite a lot of abuse by unethical people. Well, there's no doubt that that's going to happen. With any technology, we're going to get people that want to use it for good. uh, And we're going to get actors that actually want to use it to support their own agendas. And in in many of those cases, those agendas will not necessarily have a positive impact on society. For example, you know, we, you know, we can remember all the fuss at previous American elections, you know, um, about sort of hacking into systems and producing fake documentation and fake imagery, you know, all of those problems, they're not going to go away. <laughs> they're just going to get worse and worse and worse. But except now they can be, you know, the, the negative effects can be replicated, you know, a hundredfold. One of the biggest, biggest problems is uh, with respect to harm is the fact that if we if we understand how these these machines have been trained, then we can also understand that they've been trained with human bias built in. And the fact that they can now replicate that a million times faster than we can actually produce it as a human, you know, that bias is just going to be amplified throughout the whole 
process. Will we get to the stage where um, we're not going to believe anything that we see on the internet because potentially it will have been generated in a negative way? We're already in a situation where people are critical of the mainstream media. Are people going to uh, just dismiss everything? Because as far as they're concerned, it's all computer generated. Nobody's telling the truth anyway. So why should I believe any of it? There are many, many people that adopt that attitude at the moment. You know, nobody knows what to believe anymore. It's this hall of mirrors culture, you know, that we're currently experiencing and that we're heading even further into, where people have their ability to create their own engaging and captivating realities for ends ranging, you know, from everything from entertainment through to the political domain. And that's one of my big concerns about about where harm can be engendered, and, and that's in the political sphere. And we've already experienced it in what are supposed to be democratic elections, uh, for example. We've got competing narrative based on fictitious AI visions of the future, and that's going to compete uh, for the attention of all of us, You know, many of whom are not even aware that we're looking at something that is imaginary. And that again brings us back to the digital divide. We've already got a serious digital divide, you know, where the wealthy have access to to certain capabilities um, and facilities uh, uh, and solutions that, that many, many other people um, don't have. And the people that control AI, I mean, Sir Francis Bacon said that knowledge is power. And today, AI is power because of all of the knowledge that it's been trained on. And if you, if you have power, then you get control. And um, that means so uh, that the people people with the money are going to get control. So the digital divide is going to get greater and greater and greater. And those with the money are going to have access to certain facilities and features um, in society that those that don't have the money are not going to have access to. And is so that, that's a big danger. And is that going to increase economic inequality, do you think? Oh, absolutely it will, yeah. Let me give you another example about, about the role of knowledge-based systems. Absolutely. Go on. One of the types, one of the forms of, of AI that is currently in everyday use in many, many industries is what's called an expert system or a knowledge-based system. And these have been around for quite a long time. And a lot of people may or may not know that they're being used in, for example, banking, where it will be a knowledge-based system, not a human, that will actually make a decision about whether you get a loan or not. One of the things that concerns me about the ongoing developments at such rapid pace without control is that we're going to start getting what people are calling knowledge-based systems or expert systems that will allow you to do online medical diagnosis. Now, without any controls over that, you might be given carry on taking the pills type of answer and you follow that advice and it actually does you harm because no clinician has ever looked at what the rules are in that system, what it was trained on, how and how and how accurate the algorithms are, and do they contain any any bias in the more incorrect information? So you know they, these are straightforward examples of what can actually go wrong. Is that something that's likely to happen soon? Is it already happening? I have absolutely no doubt that if we were to go and do generative AI Google enhanced search for online medical diagnosis will come up with hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of hits right now. And unless that is an, an official in the UK, for example, uh, National Health Service support application, then it won't have been verified uh, in any way. Which is very concerning. Well, it's very concerning yeah. indeed. 
even though we've been exposed to to the online loan authorization process in banks, for example, for for many, many years, it hasn't been publicized. It's the computer system that's actually making the decision. So we don't really complain about it. But one of the problems that we experience, and again, it's to do with built-in bias because of the way in which the system has been trained. It's been trained on millions of bank transaction records where it uses an inductive logic capability to generate decision trees that understand what the attributes of an individual are for it to be a loan that will be honored or a loan that may that may not be. And if you train it on data in one part of the country, you'll get one set of decision trees. If you train it in another part of the country, you'll get another set of decision trees. And it may be that if you just happen to be in a biased community, that uh, your loan application will be accepted in one area and rejected in another. One of the things that I often people talk to me about is um, things like identity cards and so on and, and carrying a card. And people go, oh, I don't want the government knowing all that information about me. And one of the lines I always use, whether rightly or wrongly, and this is what I'm going to ask you, is if you've got a Tesco's club card, they know more about you than the government do already. Is that true, do you think? Yes, it is true. I mean, that's how that's how the social media sites make their money, by knowing an enormous amount about you profiling that knowledge and then selling it to advertisers. That's why adverts follow you around the internet. Yeah, by the way, internet, I've already bought an exercise bike. I don't need another one. Yes. <laughs> yes, but then, you know, maybe you bought an exercise bike, but have you got all the outfits to wear on it? Do you know? They... Yeah, I, I believe me, I don't need a special outfit. <laughs> but yeah, I, I mean, I, I do understand, you know, when your Tesco club card tokens come through, they tend to be targeted to things that you would normally buy or things they would like you to buy based on previous shopping experience. No, it's not just, you know, one supermarket chain, it's all of them. Because of a lack of regulation or a disregard of regulation, Everything that you use your credit cards to to make a purchase on is known. And that gets consolidated. Some very clever predictive analytic and AI get applied to that. And profile information is actually sent to advertisers who know exactly how to target you with personalized um, advertising. And on that, I'm going to bring you on to your creation, which is Choice Master. And we talk about the amount of information that's held on us. One of the big things about Choice Master is there isn't information held on the individual who uses it to make a choice. No, in order to make a recommendation, Choice Master doesn't need to know about anything about you as an individual. It's only interested in what's important to you about a smartphone that you want to buy or a new laptop computer or an electric vehicle. You know, what's important about that, you know, and then with respect to a vehicle, for example, how big is the size of the boot space more important than the number of seats in the car or the price of it, for example. So, um, so no, I don't need to, in Choice Master, we don't need to know anything about you as an, as an individual. We don't keep any history about you. We don't stereotype you. We ask you what's important. And then we give you a recommendation based on how close a product comes to achieving that importance. And, and the, the questions are answered by you and not suggested by the computer. And like you say, you don't hold that information. So if, if I decided to buy a new electric car through Choice Master, I wouldn't keep getting things popping up on advertising more electric cars to me when I've already bought one. No. No. Because once the purchase is gone, it's gone, that's yes, it. Yes, it's gone. We don't maintain any records of that. Interesting, an interesting uh, a, a way of using AI to 
create a better shopping experience for the customer, but not bombarding them with information and adverts and stuff of stuff they don't really need or don't really want. No, there's growing concern at private individuals' levels that they don't want to keep on giving away information about them because they know it's being misused. I, I will avoid signing up to emails, accounts for various online shops and stuff for that very reason, because I know I'm going to get bombarded with emails. And there's a couple of people who've got very similar email addresses to me, and I keep getting their emails as well. So I'm busily unsubscribing to other people's shopping emails as well. Yeah, I know. Choice Master was from the ground up designed to cater for anonymous users. We don't want to know anything about you. You know, knowing what size shirt you require or what you had or what you bought in the supermarket last week has got absolutely no impact at all on what's important to you about buying your next laptop computer. And that's interesting. And because you know, or you've been involved in the AI world for so long, you know the pitfalls potentially of of that and have almost engineered it out of the system. Yes, <laughs> deliberately uh, not included, not required. You know, it's completely and totally un- unnecessary. It's a standalone system. Yes. If I'm going into a supermarket to do my weekly shop, what on earth has that got to do with somebody that wants to sell me a, a fitness bicycle? Well, of course, uh, mind you, there could be a correlation there between what you're eating and how fit you are. And then that can then be used to generate an exercise program for you. So perhaps there are circumstances where a crossover of information is required. So there we are, David George again, telling us all about AI and the latest developments and how we all should be maybe a little bit concerned, certainly careful about the information that we're giving away. David, thank you very much again for being here and for talking to us. Um, Looking forward to the next one. If people want to get in contact with you, if they want any questions they want to ask you, what's the best way to contact you? Yeah, they can send me an email at david at choicemaster.org and I will respond to them. Excellent. So anything you want to know, david at choicemaster.org, that's where you need to send your email. We'll be back in a couple of weeks' time with another AI and You podcast with David George. Uh, Thank you very much for listening. Don't forget to review, like, subscribe or follow the podcast and um, stay safe. This is a 1386 audio production.